This first week of Advent, we light the candle of hope. Hope for light to come to the darkest places, in our own hearts and in the world. May we hold fast to hope's patient possibilities and the incredible power in the not yet. May we lift them high that they may, might catch the light of our dreams and shine bright in our broken world. May the wonder of hope awaken the world this Christmas. Good morning, I'm, I'm Becky, and I'm going to be talking to you this morning about the wonder of hope. And I'm going to start this off um, by reading you a couple poems, or parts of a couple poems. The first one is this. What would it mean to live in a city whose people were changing each other's despair to hope? You yourself must change it. What would it feel like to know that your country was changing? You yourself must change it. Though your life felt arduous, new, unmapped, strange, what would it mean to stand on the first page to the end of despair? And the second poem is this. The spirit of the Lord and King is on me. The Lord has anointed me to announce good news to poor people. He sent me to comfort those whose hearts are broken. He sent me to announce freedom to those who have been captured. He wants me to set prisoners free from their dark cells. He sent me to announce the year when he will set his people free and the day when he will pay his enemies back. Our God has sent me to comfort all those who are sad. He wants me to help those in Zion who are filled with sorrow. I will put beautiful crowns on their heads instead of sadness. I will give them an oil of joy and anoint them with this instead of sorrow. I will give them a spirit of praise instead of a spirit of sadness. They will be like oak trees planted that are strong and straight. The Lord himself will plant them in the land. And that will show how glorious he is. They will rebuild the places that were destroyed long ago. They will repair the cities that have been broken down for many years. They will make the destroyed cities like new again. They have been broken down for a very long time. Today, I'm going to talk about the wonder of hope. And as we enter into this space, I'm just going to take a moment to invite the Holy Spirit to be here with us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be here with us. That you would be very present and waken us to the wonder of the partnership with you. Just pray that you would bring your words and your revelation. Amen. So today uh, marks the start of Advent. It's that time of year when we remember Christ being born, coming to our world as a baby. It's a time when we talk about hope and peace and joy and love. And I'm sure if you have at any time been around church during this season, this is subjects, these are subjects that get talked about a lot. Um, I don't know very much how mine is going to fit into the spectrum of what you've heard before, but I do want to start this sermon off by echoing what I heard from Pastor Richard last week. I really appreciated him saying this, and so I just want to reiterate it. 
I'm aware of a lot of things when I stand up to preach to people. One is that I've spent a lot of time like immersing myself in the study of what I'm going to bring to you today. So there may be some things that I share with you that you've never heard before or that you've heard a little bit differently and that you want to talk about. Um, I also recognize that I'm standing in front of a bunch of people that have come from different experiences in life and different faith streams. You've grown up believing one way or another, and I'm very aware of that. It may be that something I say today does not resonate with you and something I say today really does. And I want to make the opportunity for you to be able to reach out to me and talk to me about that. Um, I think the best time to wrestle with concepts about Jesus and God and what it means to live in in his image in this world come from sitting across the table with coffee or tacos and talking together as two people who love Jesus and two people who want to see the best in each other. So if at any time you think I got something wrong or you think that you really want to know more about it, just reach out. I'd be happy to do that. So I know that that's like a really weird disclaimer to put at the beginning of a sermon on hope, but um, it's good. We'll go. (laughs) I think Most of us here are making an assumption, and if I'm incorrect, I'm very sorry, but most of us here have heard sort of the Christmas story or Christ story uh, at one point in time in their lives. And in in the stream of faith that I lived in in my adult years, it often became a story of God's miraculous intervention. He comes to a sinful, broken world as a baby, born of a virgin, lives a blameless life, and um, It's all for him to become the ultimate sacrifice for us and for our sins. And then he rose again, defeating death, and calls us to follow him so that we can be with him in eternity. It's a story of hope. A story we hear repeated time and time again. But somewhere along my faith journey, as I was hearing this story repeated over and over, it started not feeling like enough. And I couldn't quite articulate why. It took me a long time over many years to be able to put words to this, but ultimately it comes down to the question of hope. I have come to believe in my many years in this fundamental sense that hope is incarnational. A hope focused in eternity was super hard for me to grasp especially when I saw the very real, very present problems in the lives of my friends and family and all the people around me. And so when I come to this belief that hope is incarnational, it's come because I wrestled with it. And I feel like just saying that is something that I'm going to need to unpack with you guys. So I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey to teach you that. But it's going to go through a little bit of church history and philosophy. So I apologize, but I'll try and make it as fun as possible. Um, and I am going to be painting with a really broad stroke because we have this much time and this much church history, so bear with me on that too. But for about 300 years, the Christian church, following the death and resurrection of Christ, was a transformational movement. It was kind of the thorn in the side of governmental leaders because it kept gaining momentum despite persecution. And the church movement was one that made a name for itself by caring for the the sick and the abandoned and the people that had been left behind, often sacrificing their own well-beings and their own lives in the process. And the artwork and the imagery that came out of the church during this time period focused a lot on the life of Christ and his interactions with people, the way he taught and cared and healed and loved. 
And then came this point in time where Christianity became legitimate. The Emperor Constantine made it legal to be a part of the church and worship Jesus. And things began to change. The movement began to transition into being an institution for good and for ill. And the artwork began to change too. Christ was often depicted as set apart, holy, with a halo. Or the artwork focused on predominantly the crucifixion, the resurrection, or the virgin birth. The institution of the church appeared to prioritize the spiritual aspects of Christ and put less and less value on the humanity and his physical presence in this world. Michael Frost, a missional theologian out of Australia, describes this process as of, of like removing the human, the sort of flesh and blood side of faith as being excarnational. He says it's the antithesis of being incarnational, which he defines as being modeled after Christ's truly placed um, sense, of, sense of living. Um, one of the poems that I started off this sermon with was from the book of Isaiah, and it's the scripture that Jesus read from when he announced his ministry. He didn't start his ministry by saying, I've come to do this super spiritual thing where I die and I come back and you get to live with me in eternity. He does say that, but much later on. Um, he started with a very present ministry call, releasing prisoners, healing brokenhearted, comforting mourners, bring joy, restore cities, rebuild lives. It was fundamentally incarnational. He announced his ministry saying he would be fully present with humanity, God in flesh and blood, and then he went out and lived it. He healed, he served, he taught, he loved, he listened, he wept, he stood up for and ultimately fully embraced humanity, not just as a fallen world in need of mercy, but as a beautiful creation in need of restoration. Frost suggests that the call of the church is to model ourselves after Christ. He suggests we should be fully present in our world, embedded in our neighborhoods, empathetic and listening to the longings and the dreams and pain and beauty and humanity of the people all around us. That we should be rooted and sustainably invested in community for the long term and be collaborative partners in the people, with the people around us. And why, when Christ came, even as a baby, he was fully incarnational. According to some of the biblical prophecies, his name was to be called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Often this is interpreted as God becoming human and living with us, literally. Or representational, the idea that God has not abandoned us, that he is for us, he is with us. I believe those things, but I believe something more. I believe that the fact that Jesus was incarnationally God and beautifully human represents the way that God has inextricably linked himself with humanity. In Christ, we are called to learn the ways of God and partner with him to become stakeholders in the plan that N.T. Wright calls colonizing earth with the life of heaven. Jesus' incarnational mission becomes our own as well. God, together 
with us, working for the renewal of all things, the setting of things right in our world, right here and right now. So what does this have to do with hope? Often I've seen um, people act as if hope was an excarnate ideal. And like I said, this is something that I've had to wrestle with in my own sort of faith deconstruction and reconstruction because I've done this exact thing. We hope for the miraculous intervention. We hope for the supernatural act that will fix whatever the problem is, either now or in eternity. However, I've come to understand hope as a fundamentally incarnate process, not just a wish or a finger cross or a nothing more I can do, I hope it works kind of attitude. But instead, hope requires us to be fully present in our world, realistic about what we see, and have holy imagination to dream about what could be, and then actively invest ourselves in that process and that possibility. We have to model ourselves after the incarnate Christ. I'm going to put a brief caveat in here. Am I suggesting that we shouldn't look for or ask for a miraculous super inter supernatural intervention for God to move in an impossible way? No. Jesus' incarnational life was riddled with supernatural miracles. And I, even in my own life, have experienced God do the like, un unbelievable. I mean, take me out for coffee and I will tell you all about the time God gave me a car or how my mom is still alive today, both of which are amazing miracles that I could never have done on my own. They defy explanation. I am, however, really challenging us to wrestle with how much we treat God like a wish machine and want God to fix everything. We can end up passive in the face of despair, or isolated in our communities of belief waiting for God to intervene. I'm suggesting instead that hope involves us being an invested part of the process and the solution with God, who can and will do the miraculous, not just us ceding the responsibility to God alone. Let's look at the story of Jesus and Lazarus, which I know is very, very important part of the Christmas story. Uh, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus, and when he became gravely ill, his sisters reached out to Jesus and said, Come, Lazarus is very sick. And they fully expected Jesus to come and heal Lazarus, and then everything would be fine. But by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus was dead and buried. First, Jesus wept. He mourned with those who were there. He was fully present but also invested in the possibility of what could be. He asked for the grave to be opened, despite the smell, and then came the miracle. He spoke and called Lazarus to come out, and Lazarus did, fully alive. But then he called the people around to participate in this restorative work. He invited them to partner in this miracle by removing Lazarus' grave clothes. The supernatural happened in an incarnational con construct and context, and it involved both God and humanity. I used to work with a program that used virtue theory and reading novels as a diversion program for first-time juvenile offenders and incarcerated youth, which seems like that would work really well. It actually did, but um, we taught them seven cardinal virtues from Plato and Aristotle. Or sorry, Plato and... 
Thomas Aquinas. Actually, I'm wrong. Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. It's been years. Oh, my goodness. But we taught them the seven cardinal virtues. Justice, prudence, temperance, fortitude, fidelity, hope, and love. And for each one of those, it was pretty easy to break down the meaning behind those virtues so that the teens could get a grasp on them, see where they were at play in the books we were reading, and see where they were at play or not at play in their lives. Hope was the worst, though. Because we use that word hope in so many incorrect ways. I hope I get that Nintendo Switch for Christmas. I hope I pass that test. I hope he calls me back. None of these are really hope. They're wishes and desires and longings, but not hope. And in my groups, we finally settled on a definition for hope that we were able to sink our teeth in. Hope is a belief in a future possibility that I choose to invest myself in. And what is this future possibility? What is the can be that we believe and invest in? This is where holy imagination comes in. Let's go back to Jesus. He saw humanity as pregnant with possibility while imperfect and broken it was worth investing in. Jesus saw exactly who people were and what they could become. Tax collectors who could be generous. Fishermen who could lead churches. Prostitutes who could be cherished and children who could be welcomed and wedding guests who could really be served better wine. He modeled this from the very start of his ministry when he read from Isaiah 61, that scripture that I started the sermon with. He spoke of reality and possibility. People mourning, they could be joyful. People are imprisoned, they could be free. Dwellings are destroyed, they could be restored. And Jesus, with the Spirit anointing him, was investing himself in these possibilities. This is holy imagination in action. And what is holy imagination exactly? I mean, I'm banding this word around like y'all should know what it is. Um, but I think I'm going to have to explain it just a little bit. It's a spiritual practice that was formed, that well, was kind of like formalized by the early church fathers um, in the, that lived in the desert and were really working to follow spiritual practices and build them into their lives. And it starts with being fully present Grounding yourself in your communities and rooting yourself in the life of Christ. Be listeners who hear the issues, pay attention to the accomplishments and the struggles, and invite the Spirit to bring wisdom and revelation. Now imagine. Imagine what could be. Imagine who people could become. Imagine how situations could be changed. Give you an example of this from my own life. Uh, I know it doesn't look like it now, but I was a horrible teenager, uh, especially to my mother. And literally, my mom would ask me to do something, and I would go off on her, screaming and crying with every emotion and all accusation present. And my dad could come in, ask me to do the same thing, and I would act like it was the most reasonable request in the world and go do it. It was not good. Uh, 
My mom told her best friend that if I didn't get off to college really soon, then my mom herself would end up in jail for what she did to me. And her best friend thought she was kidding, but I'm pretty sure my mother was not. Um, one night after this huge blow up where my mom and I were yelling at each other, my dad stepped in to mediate. We weren't getting anywhere, but suddenly my dad smiled and looked at us. And he said, you know, I just feel in my spirit that one day the two of you are going to be best friends. Literally, the only thing that my mom and I agreed on that entire year was that my dad had lost it. He was crazy. But my dad wasn't under any illusions. He was firmly rooted in the very real present, full of animosity and anger and resentment. But he had been praying, and his prayers for us were that we would become what we could be. And in his holy imagination, he saw this looking like respect and deep admiration and love and closeness. And his choosing to invest in this possibility also gave my mom and I hope as well. It's amazing what can happen when someone affirms who you can become. Incarnation is vital to holy imagination. This being invested and present and actively listening in a situation is so important. If not, it's easy to assume and not imagine what hope looks like to somebody else. There's an Anglican priest in the UK named Dave Tomlinson, and once he wrote, whenever I hear someone say, Jesus is the answer, I want to ask them, do you have the remotest idea what the question is? If we're not embedded, empathetic, listening and collaboratively invested parts of our community, holy imagination is difficult to do well. We could be imagining answers to questions that haven't been asked or remedies to problems that haven't been voiced. And if you don't believe me, ask someone who says they're lonely how many times they've been told that somebody's going to pray for their spouse to come along. That's not always the right answer. Sometimes the question is deeper than what we see we want to put as the answer or the imagination on the situation. Let me give you a story to give you a little bit more pictures on this. Um, the story comes out of the book Bridges Out of Poverty, and it starts with a teacher in the Midwest who had a student who, during the morning, struggled with staying awake, was not focused, was disruptive, not an active part of the class, and then he would go to lunch and come back and be engaged and a part of the class and learning and super bright. And the teacher was like, what is going on with this? I want to find how we can get to the bottom of it. So she started talking to the student and the student said something along the lines of that he had, was not able to have good breakfasts in the morning, that they didn't have a lot of food in their house other than snack food because they didn't have a refrigerator. The teacher thought, oh my gosh, we can fix this. So she got a bunch of her friends and family together. They all donated about 20 bucks and they were able to purchase a good used refrigerator. And they took it over to this student's house. And the mom was just like beside herself, was weeping. She was so grateful for this gift of refrigerator. Next day, the teacher comes back to class and the kid's not there. And the next day, he's not there. 
nor the next day. Two weeks pass by and this kid is gone. And he comes back to class and the first morning was like it always was. In the morning, he was not engaged. He was having issues. And then after lunch, he was there. So she talked to him. She said, how are things going? He said, my mom wants me to tell you, thank you so much for the refrigerator. And she said, really? Okay, why? And he said, well, we are so grateful for it. My mom went out and sold it, and we took a trip, a road trip to Alabama. And the teacher's like, just got all these people together to donate a refrigerator, and you turn around and sell it. Like, she was so angry. And then the kid went on. My mom's mom lives in Alabama, and she's really sick. She's dying. And my mom thought, we're never going to be able to see her again because we didn't have the money to go all the way down to Alabama. But then you gave us the refrigerator, and we were able to sell it and have enough money for the road trip so we were able to go and say goodbye to my grandma. The teacher did something well-meaning and very well-intentioned but she didn't know what the real question was. And part of being incarnational is to listen and learn and be collaborative rather than just assuming we have the answer. So using holy imagination requires us to be fully present first. If hope is believing in a future possibility and choosing to invest ourselves in it. This can be both an individual and a corporate journey. Not only can we encourage each other to use holy imagination, but we can work to be incarnate together. It starts when we're present with each other and grows when we choose to be ambitious for one another's growth and becoming. Moreover, we can together be engaged and fully present in the needs of our city, listening, learning, imagining, and investing in our city's development and successes. We can be the ones who dream of a revitalized city where no one is left behind. And we can join with others who dream of a community that works well for everyone and start by investing in the lives of the people around us, our friends and our neighbors. Hope is a truly astounding thing. We need it to thrive. Our world needs it to thrive. And in fact, one of the scriptures that was in the Advent video, Romans 8, starts off saying this. All of creation is eagerly waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Creation is calling and longing and expecting us to live and embody hope every day. A hope that is born from communion between God and humanity, from being fully present and looking in wonder and imagination at what is possible with us and God together. It's about choosing then to invest in that process, investing ourselves in this goal to renew all things. I started this sermon with two poems, the one that came from Isaiah that Jesus referenced a lot, and another by a woman named Adrian Rich, entitled Dreams Before Waking. And she asks this super important question, what 
what it mean to live in a city whose people were changing each other's despair into hope? Wouldn't it be wondrous to find out? And this, this is the invitation this Advent, to be incarnational with Christ and a part of this process. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for inviting us on this amazing journey. This beautiful place where we work with you for your plan and your purpose in this world. That we invest in your ways of reaching earth with heaven's light. And that in the here and now, we walk in incarnational hope. Amen.